0: with me to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, reading to the end of 1 Corinthians 3, especially focused on verses 12 to the end, but let's pick up the reading at verse 10, where we're studying through this book, and the beginning part of this book has a lot to say about the cure, the antidote to divisions in the church, and we're seeing some of the powerful statements the apostle makes to instruct the Corinthians about this. Here, as I read God's Word, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone amongst you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Do you belong to Jesus Christ by faith? I hope so. I hope you trust in Him as your Savior and Lord. And if you do belong to Him, are are you living your life in view of that awesome reality that you've been bought with a price, that you belong to Jesus Christ? In this passage, as Paul gives wise guidance and correction to the Christians at Corinth, he helps them to see their petty jealousies and their divisions in terms of the deep spiritual realities of who they truly are in Christ and what God is doing in their midst. And it becomes clear as the apostle teaches them that they need to take these teachings to heart and move away from their childish, as it were, bickering and posturing and pride and to be, to begin more and more to become what God has called them to be in Christ. They belong to Christ, and tonight we're looking at three points related to them belonging to Christ. The first is this, because we belong to Christ, how we live our lives matters for eternity. Because we belong to Christ, how we live our lives matters for eternity. We saw this spelled out in... In, in a more elaborate way than we find often in Scripture. In verses 12 through 15, the apostle talks about building on this foundation. Pastor Walker talked about this foundation that no one else can lay other than Jesus Christ. But then the church and workers in the church, teachers in the church, every member of the church is called to build upon that foundation. And Paul uses the analogy of... Uh, the precious things of this life. And he says, whether it's gold or silver or precious stones, or whether it's wood, hay, stubble or straw. And he says, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that's the day of Christ, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And he goes on to talk about this, making it clear that there is this sense in which every believer we know is justified by grace through faith alone. But when we see Jesus face to face, there will be this giving of an account. And those things that we have done that don't please the Lord will be burned up, as it were, will be um, possibly wood or straw, and we hope that there is something of value as well. But the point that Paul is making here is that we are called to build on this true foundation of Jesus Christ, and that lasts for eternity. Those works, those deeds, those labors that please the Lord have eternal significance before God. And Paul elaborates on the types of works that are built on this. And the context here is that there are teachers and preachers in the church and how they build well or not so well has significance. But the principle applies not just to them. It's a general one. All Christians are called to live their lives in view of eternity. Our works do not save us. We know that. But our works will be evaluated by God, and they will be rewarded by God, we're told here. It says in verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, in other words, survives this evaluation, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And the worst case scenario in verse 15 is this sense of someone, almost all or all of their good works being not good works at all, but still being saved. And almost we see the sense here, by the skin of their teeth, we might say. Works burned up and yet still saved, yet so as through fire. A number of questions immediately probably come to your mind, or if you've never studied this in depth. One is, is this a contradiction of salvation by grace through faith? And the answer is no, not at all. Ultimately, all is of grace. We are saved by grace, and Scripture makes it clear that even the good works that we do are by God's grace. Yes, we cooperate with that, but it's interesting if you turn back to chapter 3, verse 10, a few verses before this that we studied last time. According to the grace of God given me, Paul says. So he prefaces the fact that he is a skilled master builder in the church. He says, according to the grace given me and then later on in 1st Corinthians 15 of verse 9 he says this he goes into this in a little bit more depth he says for i am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god and he says but by the grace of god i am what i am and then he's going to go on to say this I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, than the other apostles. In other words, he's saying, here's Paul speaking about his hard work in the gospel ministry, and he's saying that from his point of view, it seems that he's worked harder than any of them, or at least as hard. And then he goes on to say, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. A good passage that shows the balance of our responsibility to live life in wisdom with a view to eternity. And yet, even when we do that, our very best to please the Lord, and we we believe that we do please Him in many ways and grow in pleasing the Lord and in serving Him, when all is said and done, we can only say it is all by grace. So, it doesn't contradict Salvation by grace through faith, it is all of God. All of our works are the fruit of God's work in us and show the genuineness of our faith. But we have to bring this theme in here that is clear in this text that um, what we do, the priorities that we set, and the way we serve God with our lives, and even our attitudes of heart, the motives of our heart, all we do is will be evaluated, will be judged by God. But for the Christian, it is not under condemnation ever because we are in Christ. In fact, Second Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 10 goes into this in some depth. And let me start at verse 8 there, Second Corinthians 5, 8. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul talks about death in this sense of being away from the body and home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So there's a strong incentive to please the Lord. And then he concludes with this verse. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And there the context is Paul speaking to believers. He's talking about this judgment in a sense that believers experience. But we know that it's not unto condemnation in any way, yet it is a true judgment of rewards. Well, another question that might come to our mind in this regard is, what then are these rewards? We could talk about that at some length. The Bible points in certain directions, but we do not know exactly beyond the the, the things that the Bible alludes to. One in the very context here is simply... There is the con- commendation, the praise of God. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, Therefore, we do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There, t- Paul is talking about our hearts will be revealed, and then each one will receive his praise from God. So, Somehow this reward has to do with the praise, the commendation of God that He will commend us. It brings to mind the parable and that concluding phrase, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, commendation from God, that joy that is in that. But it's also clear that the reward is tied into knowing and fellowshipping and rejoicing in God. Again, this is a great mystery because we know that Scripture makes it clear that every believer will enter into the joy of the Lord, that every tear will be wiped away. So, it's very difficult to to nail this down because somehow the Scripture says there will be degrees of reward in heaven, even though everyone will be rejoicing in the Lord. And somehow that will be determined by how you live for Christ and walk with Christ In this life, I remember one of my seminary professors used the analogy of a full cup, and he he said something like this In heaven, scripture seems to imply that everyone's cup will be full, but we will not all have the same size cup. I thought that's an interesting way to look at that. That idea that, um, There will be different experiences of this. There will be degrees of this, just as we could also look at the degrees of experiencing judgment in hell, which is alluded to as well, and we're not going into that now. There's also a clear statement about the fact that our growth in godliness in this life has eternal value. I think of 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, which talks about it this way, um, that the end of verse seven, Paul says to Timothy, rather train yourself for godliness. And then he gives the motivation for that in in verse eight. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, and that's pretty much the only place that the Bible mentions exercise. You see everybody at the gym these days? Well, it has some value, but he's contrasting the value of bodily training or exercise in this life with the eternal value of godliness. He says bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Interesting, isn't it? I think about that and I think, well, wait. When we see Jesus Christ face to face, aren't we going to all be glorified completely? So you might twist the theology of the Bible and think, Well, if that's the case, I'll just wait for that day. Why strive for godliness now? But the answer of this verse is no. If you strive for godliness now and the power of the Spirit, looking to the Lord, seeking to please Him in the way you live, it has value for the life to come. It's mysterious how that's going to be worked out. You know, it's not like the children's game Mother, May I? Did you ever play that game or did you ever play that with your mom or dad or anything? I used to think I had a little... Sister, and I never thought it was fair because I'd do mother may I and I'd, I wouldn't make any mistakes and I'd get right near the end and then my mom would give my sister these giant steps to get there and win the game. It's like, wait, she made lots of mistakes and she's, that's, you know, it's almost like we might think that way about glorification. We know that we're all going to be glorified, every sin wiped away, but still our progress in godliness in this life will be rewarded. We'll have an eternal Value. I think that um, the idea of Scripture talking about the impact on your life of your life on others is a very important one when we think about rewards as well, because there's often allusions in Scripture to, for example, the Apostle Paul, and that the people whose lives he's impacted with the gospel are his joy and crown in the day of Christ. You think, what exactly does that mean? It means that there's a sense of joy and reward. For example, one verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul writes, For what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. There's this sense of of satisfaction and joy and even reward. Doesn't the word crown speak of reward? That... um, in this impact of serving others and being an instrument in their lives. As you hear David and Lisa talk about these people's lives being impacted by the gospel, I think Scripture would have us say that what a joy on that day of Christ when some of these children from the Good News Clubs are there rejoicing in Christ, and the Henrys are going to be rejoicing in them, and there's going to be that reward that comes along with that. I think of the application to mothers on Mother's Day especially. I guess I should have an application that way. But one of the increasingly unheralded tasks of our modern society is motherhood. You just look far and wide in our society, except maybe some Hallmark cards on Mother's Day. Um, For a mother to pour her life out for her family is not a politically correct task in our day. And the accolades from the world for motherhood are certainly few and far between. But what, what a way to massively impact others, children. You know, the saying, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. I think that that phrase of the parable of the laborers in Matthew 20 will certainly be part of the last day when, it, when there's those laborers who went into the field for the whole day and others came at the very end and then, One of the sayings at the end is, the last shall be first and the first last. I think there are going to be some great surprises on the last day. That There might be public figures in the church who are way far behind the humble service of maybe mothers pouring their lives into their kids unheralded by the world or hardly anyone around them. And they're left with only their husbands on Mother's Day to really praise them. So husbands, go for it and kids too. And then we find that the Scripture speaks about rewards for those faithful in persecution when they experience that. You think of the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus talks about blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake. And He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He doesn't stop there. He concludes with these words, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Dr. Rogers spoke this morning about courageously standing for Christ and not knowing how soon it will be in our society that such a stance will cause persecution to be experienced. And Jesus, when he speaks these words, makes it clear that it is a right and good motivation in persecution to know that there is a heavenly reward yet to come. That is not wrong to want that. Yes, the Bible talks about many motivations. Our highest motivations are trusting in Jesus and loving Jesus Christ and joy in Christ and, and gratitude to Christ for what he's done. But the Bible has many motivations about holiness, about serving the Lord. In fact, in, in Kevin DeYoung's book on holiness, there are three pages that list all the diverse motivations that Scripture has. And Kevin DeYoung says that Jesus Christ is like a master physician who out of his medicine bag of motivation for us knows how to pull out just the right motivation for us from his word to encourage us in the Lord. And one of the motivations is that knowing our life matters and that God does not forget one little deed of service done out of love for Christ is important. And then we think about Matthew ten forty-two. Familiar verse that probably all of you quote sometimes that whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You can't get more mundane than that. We're used to drinking fountains being around, but thinking of this arid climate and just thinking of giving a drink of water to a little one, and Jesus encourages us with that reward You see how this teaching transforms the way we look at our lives. It's not that we say to ourselves, I'm saved by Christ's work, and so it doesn't matter what I do now. I can just live like the world. No, we belong to Jesus Christ. We've been bought with a price. All that we do, we do before God and for his glory. All of it has significance. And so we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that tremendous conclusion to this chapter on the resurrection of Christ. And he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In whatever way you're serving the Lord now, however any, anyone else notices that or doesn't, no matter what kind of opposition you might face, no matter how hard the going gets going, remember that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, the second point, and I'll be more brief on my next two, is that because you belong to Christ, you are part of God's true temple, the church. Because you belong to Christ, you are part of God's true temple, the church. Verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In the ancient world, temples were seen as a place where a god or the gods, small g, dwelt. And Paul is saying, by contrast to that, Christians as a body, the you is plural here in every case. Later on, in chapter 6, we'll talk about you singular as an individual are the temple of the Lord as well. Your body is. But, you are indwelt corporately by the Spirit of God, and you are holy. You are set apart. God's temple is holy. I kind of look at this description here as the very end of the spectrum of the danger of the wood, hay, and straw kind of works. And Paul is even going to the most severe example, I think, of being concerned about serious error and even heresy infiltrating the church. And he's saying, you are the temple of God. It's a very serious thing. If someone seeks to build on the foundation and then takes the church off the foundation, whenever you take a house or a building off its foundation, you know that's not good, takes it off the foundation because of heresy, because abandoning the gospel, of turning away from the fundamentals of the faith, You can't destroy the universal church of God, but the local church, a a visible representation of the church, a local body of believers, can be destroyed. It can be ruined. It can stop existing. Look at the seven churches of Asia Minor, and look where they are nowadays. It's a sobering thing. In history, it has occurred many times. So, this is also an encouragement to us as well to remember that… God's Spirit dwells within us. We corporately are the church. Let us seek to continue to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, something that always is in line with the gospel. But finally, we find in our concluding verses, our third point is that because we belong to Christ, our true joy and our boasting are in Christ. He's bringing the argument to an end here, and he's, he goes back to this theme of the wisdom of this age. It's been very much a part of the beginning part of 1 Corinthians, and Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And then he, he uses two Old Testament quotations from Job and from the Psalms for the… Uh, For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. He's saying worldly wisdom that's fundamentally opposed to God will ultimately be thwarted by God. It may seem to win the day, it may seem to last a long time, but ultimately it will be exposed and he will catch the so-called wise in their craftiness. And then he quotes again in verse 20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. In other words, all is empty and vain, apart from this foundation of Christ, without knowing Christ, without being found in Christ. But in contrast to that, he goes on to conclude here with the idea that with Christ and in Christ and because you belong to Christ, all things are yours and it's just one of those beautiful passages that is kind of like Romans 8 and the conclusion of Romans 8, when Romans 8 comes to, come to that great crescendo about whatever happens to us. We are sustained by the love of Christ. And he says here, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. David Brainerd lived among the Indians for a number of years in his mid 20s until close to his death at age 29. And he gave up just about everything to go in the wildernesses of New Jersey for the most part, often soaked through to the skin, crossing rivers and out in the elements and living with the Indians there, facing much discomfort. And even suffering from tuberculosis during that time and and having that. So his journals were often filled with discouragement and what we would call, what they would have called a melancholy struggle. But in his heart, sometimes the journal would just shine with his sense of the love of Christ poured out upon him and his joy in this work of bringing the gospel to those who didn't know Christ. And I think that it could have been said for him, all are yours whether the present or the future or life or death, and death was to be soon His lot. But His reward, I'm sure, is great in the Lord. Two months ago when we saw images of 21 Coptic Christians being marched out on a beach and executed by ISIS terrorists, one of the thoughts that came to my mind was, what was going through those Christians' minds we don 't know how much they were really well taught or anything like that, and it makes me to stop and think about they faced the prospect of knowing their life was soon going to be given over to death for their Lord. The video that the terrorists made threatened the nation of the cross, speaking of Christians, that it was empty, that it was wrong twenty one Coptic Christians gave their lives, and you just can't help but wonder as we think about our lives, certainly if that day came for any of us, we would want to be strong in the Lord, focusing on joy in Christ, the glory to come. It's harder to do that, isn't it, in the mundane, everyday nature of life? But we're called to do it as well. On a Monday morning like tomorrow, that you might get up and go to work and do the normal things of life. Is your life focused on the fact that you belong to Christ that this life matters for eternity, that you are part of the temple of God, that Jesus Christ is building for his glory, and that ultimately your true joy and your boasting are in Jesus Christ above all else. May that be your attitude this day and every day. Amen. Father, thank you for the truth that you give us to sustain us. Thank you for the power of the Spirit to bring that truth to our hearts. Thank you for the realities of heaven and the life to come, which we know that we only dimly see in this life, but your word assures us that these things are true. They are not a pipe dream. And so help us to hold them, to live by them, to be sustained by them, whether this week brings joys or sorrows in this earth, whether there are great struggles or whether there is great happiness, whether there is fullness or whether there is emptiness. May Jesus Christ be our ultimate joy, and may our boasting be in Him alone. We pray in His name. Amen.